we apologize to those of you that are on the side that doesn't have the projection. We'll, um, we'll make sure that we get a light bulb for that and actually a spare. So thanks for understanding with us. We were here working yesterday and we found two extra lamps that go to a different projector, so that didn't do us any good today. But before we uh, crack open the word, I just want to say something to you about faith. I just want to say that um, this is not really, it probably is going to be where we'll end up today in, in the word, but um, if, you, if, you have, um, if you feel like there is a little bit of a void in your life concerning the faith, to pray for things, to believe for things that you are encountering, I want you to know that the Bible teaches us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if you will let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your soul today, you'll walk out of those doors with more faith. I want to pray over that. Lord, uh, I just ask God for the supernatural to circulate among us today. We, we're in your house, God, because we love you, because we have an expectation, Lord, not that somehow you would wait upon us, but, Lord, that we know our loving God has good things for us. So we ask God for the pouring out of faith. Help it rise up within our souls today in Jesus' name. So uh, today we're going to, the proverb for the, for the day today is Proverbs 2620. You don't have to go there, but you know I'm going to give you one. Today's the 26th. Remember, there's 31 days in, in any given month. Just go to, there, that means that if you go to that, the chapter equal to the date. So today's proverb, which I get to pick, because I get to stand up here, I get to pick the proverb. So you're stuck with whatever I choose. This one, 26 verse 20, where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no gossip, strife ceases. And I didn't tell you that because I think there's gossip here. It's just a good one, right? It's just a good one. So last week we talked about uh, Chronicles 2020. We, we read the scripture. and Basically, it's King Jehoshaphat stands out in front of the nation and he says, believe in God and you'll be established. Believe in his prophets or believe in his voice and you'll prosper. So if you want to be established, believe in God. If you want to prosper, then believe in the voice of God. Today, today our text is going to be 2 Timothy 3.16, and we're going to stick it up on the wall for you if you're on this side. If you're on this side, you have to have your Bible out, I guess. Um, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instructions in righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, we would never want to take your word for anything other than the majestic gift that it is. So, Lord, as we spend just a few minutes together examining what your word would say, we ask God for you to just... Just wedge it down into our souls. In the name of Jesus, amen. There's this guy who um, is an atheist. Now he's kind of known as the eBay atheist. Maybe you've heard of him or maybe you haven't. It's a guy, he's a college student in the Chicago area, and this is from a couple of years ago, so this, is, this might be new news to you. Sorry if you're on this side, I'll get out of the way so that you can all take a peek at what this guy looks like. When I heard about him, I wanted to see, what's, what's this guy look like? eBay atheist. He's called that because he put an ad in eBay. You know what eBay is? Okay, I figured. Um, and uh, he basically said this, I'm an atheist. To the high bidder, I'm going to give you my time. You can try and convert me. I'll go to your church. I'll work with your ushers. I'll do whatever it is for the length of time. And so for every $10 in the bid, I'll spend an hour. And the winning bid was about $504. So about 50 hours this guy committed to going to a church. And he went to a church in, um, in the Chicago area. And uh, his, his, in, his intention, I don't know what his intention was. I guess to make a little bit of money. Maybe it was to kind of throw down a a glove in challenge somewhere, but this guy decided that he was going to make himself available. Give me your best shot. Give me your best shot. So 
I don't know what to think about that. I don't know what to think about a guy that uh, just wants to get up in your grill like that. I like that. The word says that God would rather have us be either hot or cold, but not lukewarm. So the Lord really can take someone who is really, really anti-God and turn them around. People that are lukewarm, it's a different deal. They're comfortable, and, and, and that's, a, that's a much bigger problem. So this guy put, put atheism kind of front and center in our nation's mind when this came out. I was... Interesting, because it, it was an interesting thought, because basically people come from two viewpoints. There's only two. You either believe that everything around you is the result of some sort of cosmic accident, or you believe that it was created, that there was a creator somewhere. Those are the only two real world, world views. And it is from that worldview, that is the worldview that will establish all of your values and everything else that you believe. It all springs from there. So we live in this crisis of authority, parental authority. Um, you know, how much influence do parents really have over their kids? I, I like to tell this story when Lisa and I were um, raising our kids. You know, we, we were, I think, fairly diligent. We love our children. And, and uh, they went, they grew up and went through school and uh, went through public schools all the way up and through college. And uh, there was never a single day, not a single day that they went to school that they didn't get prayed over by either us together or us individually. But we prayed over our kids every day, and it was with intentionality. And when our oldest boy, Ben, um, went off to the University of Washington, Lisa and I decided we were going to parents' orientation, freshman orientation. Big, big, big meeting, a couple thousand people, and they were going to parade some people in front of us. And uh, one of them was the head of the English department of the university up there. And I don't know about you, but what kind of parents would you expect to show up at orientation? They would typically be the parents that would be involved with their kids, invested with their kids. Makes sense? I mean, people that don't really care or maybe they're too busy or a lot of, lot of reasons why people not, might not be there. But in that crowd, you probably have a higher concentration of invested parents than an average crowd. I'm not making any assessments about anybody. I'm just saying, so, so you've got a, a crowd that might be a little more um, careful, or maybe they're really paying attention. And I'm, I will never forget what this, this guy said who stood up, and now he's speaking to the parents. He basically said this, you've had 18 years to cram your conservative ideals into these kids. We're going to fix that in the next four. <laughs> yeah, I got that way too. Oh, okay. <laughs> but that demonstrates the parental authority is under crisis in America. It's just an example of it. There's a crisis of marital authority in our courts. There's a crisis of political authority, academic. I mean, I could go on. All of those challenges to authority give their birth. They rise from that basic worldview that I mentioned before. There was a senator in 1917. The guy's name was Hiram Johnson, a U.S. senator, and he made this statement. He says, "In the first casualty when war comes is truth. In every cultural war, truth is the first casualty. Here's just a few social indicators. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about social stuff. I like to spend my time in the Word of God, but I'm going to just give you some facts about what's going on. And I'm going to use 1963 as the before and after for some of this because it's easy to get information about that. It's been studied a lot. A lot. Um, so these statistics, and by the way, if you, want to, if you want to check me out, I've got my... I got my page with all of my references here so I can tell you where I got all this information. It's, I'm not making any of this up. 
God forbid I would ever make anything up up here, but, but I can prove to you when I got here, okay? So 1963, 14% in this case of white women who were married in the 40s eventually got divorced. That makes sense? So in, 1960, in 1963, when they measured, of white women who got married in the 40s, 14% got divorced. One generation later, about 50% of people in the late 60s and 70s who got married were getting divorced. In just in the five years from 1970 to 1975, divorce increased 40%. The breakup of the family. Between 1970 and 1992, the proportion of babies born outside of marriage rose from 11% to 30%. And uh, in the U.S. and United States, legal abortions. Before 19, in the 37 years before 1963, just over 9,000 in 37 years. In the 37 years after 1963, just over 34 million. Violent crime rates. Uh, okay, violent, what's a violent crime? Murder, forcible rape, robbery, and aggravated assault. They're in this category. Around 1960, the rate was 200 violent crimes per 100,000 people. By about the mid-70s, that had doubled, gone more than double from 200 to 500 per 100,000 people. So things have, have started changing in America, and many of you were born after 1963, so you don't know the before and the after. Now, I've given you some pretty coarse truths about America, about our world, really, and I want to stop in the word, stop in the message here for just a minute and, and, and make a point about something, because I might have mentioned a statistic about something that's touched your life. And I, the intention here is not to bring condemnation in this room. Romans 8.1 is very clear about that. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So I, I just want to pause for a moment and um, forgive me if in the delivery of those facts, I somehow wedged you up into the corner somehow, made you feel bad. That is not what this is about. I want to paint a scenario situation. So forgive me if I've done that to you, but now let me pray and let the Spirit go to work. God, um, I want to thank you that you are the retriever. You are the one who sees in us worth. You are the one that sees in us so much worth that you paid an impossibly high price because love is your name. So let your love rest upon us, Lord. We thank you, God, that you redeem us and that, that as we look at these statistics, we see a condition of our society, not the condition of our relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, for redeeming us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so you get the picture. Why 1963? It's, it, was an, it was an intentional choice on my part. Why, why look at the hinge as 1963? Well, it's real interesting. There was something very significant that happened in 1963. There was a landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision that basically said the Bible is not going to be allowed in our schools anymore. Now, I'm not going to thump Bibles here and make a case um, about Bibles getting back into school. Just want us to notice, it's interesting to see significant social change in our country. And I personally believe that this was a significant factor in it. 1963. In 1963, the Bible became a casualty of war, of that cultural war. And I think that the original intent of the enemy of our souls is rejection of authority. It happened right early in the grave, or in, excuse me, not the grave, in the garden. Why did I say grave? I have no idea. Just right there in the garden when, when um, the, the examination was going on within their hearts, should we go ahead and eat this fruit? And Satan says to Eve, 
did God really say? You can see it in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say that you will die? Did he really? I mean, there was a challenging of authority right at the very beginning. Here are a few facts about this book, okay? First book ever printed. The best-selling book of all time. In early America, it was used, and excerpts were stuck into primers, or is it primers? I don't know. I never knew, do know the answer to that. In our, in our schools, and kids not only learned to read by reading the book, but they learned their lessons, and they learned lessons of character from the Bible. It's actually not one book. There are 66 different books here, and they've been written by a lot of different people over a long time, 40 different authors, give or take. Uh, 40 is pretty much a widely accepted number. And um, if you um, are not a student of the Word of God or a follower of Christ, you might have some concerns and objections. What are the objections that people have about saying that the Bible is real? Because I'm going to tell you today, this is the real Word of God. And it's not because I say so, and it's not because someone who came before me says so, although they are godly and worth following and respecting. There are good reasons for you to accept and believe that this is the Word of God just based on what, I'm, uh, what, what, I, what the Lord will show you today and what we're gonna, some of the material we're going to look at. So some of the things people say to try to tear down its authenticity, they say that the accounts are not historical, they're made up stories. They say that there was no writing in Moses' day. They say that it was written centuries after the events actually happened, so the prophecies weren't really prophecies. They say there are, it's full of contradictions. The problem is that, that those generalities are nice, but get specific. When you get specific about those things, you find out that there have been archaeological discoveries and, and academic discoveries. In fact, with a competent analysis, none of those things hold water. None of those accusations hold water. So I want to take just a couple of minutes and talk about where the Bible came from because I want this church to be grounded in this word. And so I want, also want your faith to be grounded in the truth. So where did the Bible come from? Well, first off, the Bible was written by men, but it was actually authored by God. It's an important distinction. 2 Timothy 3.16, our, scriptures, our, our text for today says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. God breathed is what that word really means, inspiration. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. All of it, all of this scripture is the word of God. Apart from this, other books are not the word of God. They're not. We'll talk about why we know that. So I want to say that same sentence again a different way. It's written by men, but authored by God. Now, that acknowledges the fact that the style, the form, the form of God's word was influenced by men. The form was influenced, not the content. Okay? We'll talk about some some reasons that we know that that's true, and I'll give you some examples. Uh, the Bible has integrity as well. It all hangs together. There are parts of the Bible that just will not make sense until you're somewhere else. Uh, I'll, I'll give you some examples of that in a, in a little while as well. So I'm going to talk about the Old Testament versus the New Testament for a minute. We, we call the Old Testament, we call it the Old Testament. It is the actual uh, scriptures that the Hebrews used. And the New Testament, of course, are, are mostly letters Letters that were written by people that lived then, they would exchange them with each other, they would share them with different churches, they would hand copy them and pass them around. They were written by people who were eyewitnesses to the events. They were contemporaries of Jesus. 
And uh, so they referenced each other in their writings. They referenced the Old Testament. They specifically referenced what, what we call the Vorlaga, which is the, the original Hebrew Old Testament. And in fact, the same references that Jesus used reference those same Old, Old Testament um, scriptures. And then there are some other old, old books that other faiths believe are scriptures, and we do not believe that they are. They're, they're called the Apocrypha. And uh, in fact, probably the most notable place where you would hear about the books used that we call the Apocrypha are the Catholic Church. And there, is a re- there are good reasons why mainstream um, um, Catholicism and the Protestant denominations separated on those issues. And there were, these, these issues were studied. Basically, I'm going to summarize it real quickly and say that the early church did not consider those extra books to be inspired. And there are reasons. that There, there are some issues with some of them. I'm not going to um, belabor this issue because I, I, I risk now putting you to sleep with facts, but I want to show you a quick slide. And this slide, oh, there's not one over here because Jesus is not over in this uh, projector. Okay. This, this makes no sense. You can study it. I can go over it with you. But here what I just want to show you is the, these different lines are the, um, the origin and the lineage of the different texts in different languages. If anybody suggests to you there are big, huge time gaps and we lost information and now we have found these new secrets, it's just not true. It's just not true. How do you know that? Well, we're going to talk about what happened in the Wadi Qumran when, uh, when somebody found in a cave a bunch of jars, and when they broke the jars, they found them full of scrolls, which, by the way, there were 600 different scrolls or fragments that were found, and only about 200 of them were um, scripture. The other ones were, you know, I guess cookbooks or something. I don't know what they would have been. But only a third of them were scripture. Here's another, um, another interesting um, outside verification. There's a guy named Josephus, sometimes called Flavius Josephus. He was a Jew. He was not a Christian. He was actually a soldier and a commander of a soldier. He's a very controversial person to the Jewish because he, um, he, he was a commander, but somehow his entire unit mostly committed suicide, but he survived it. There's a lot of weird stuff going on. But what he's known for is being a, a reliable, authentic, trustable histor- historian. He kept information about and wrote uh, information about what was going on in Jewish life, especially at the time of around 70 or so A.D., at the time of the Jewish and the Roman um, conflict. Here is, by the way, you can find his books in any public library. They would have it. It's called Antiquities of the Jews. You can go there yourself and read this. What I want to read to you is a couple sentences that are lifted out of his book. Secular writer, a respected secular writer. This is from Antiquities of the Jews, book 18, chapter 3, section 3, okay? Now, there was about this time Jesus a wise man, if it be lawful to claim him a man. For he was a doer of wonders, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He would teach people the truth if they would listen. He drew many after him, both of the Jews and the Gentiles. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. It's amazing that this Jewish author makes this statement, but he doesn't embrace him. Shocks me. When Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. <laughs> this is a secular writer. As the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things about him. 
and the tribe of Christians so named from him or from him are not extinct at this day and we're still going wow, wow. so the dead sea scrolls dead sea scrolls they were found um in the 20th century, there was 11 caves in Quadi Ruman. I don't know if they've all been studied quite yet. Um, they're very, very careful with them. There are 600 manuscripts that, like I said, about a third of those are biblical. And uh, the total of, of all of those manuscripts is like in the tens of thousands. Every Old Testament book is represented in there, except the book of Esther. And they're not all complete. There are large portions of most and many. Um, there is a particularly good copy of Isaiah 54. They all predate A.D. 70, which is an important date. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, but here's something else that they predate. They all agree with versions of Scripture that we rely on today called the Septuagint and the Vorlaga. Now, the Vorlaga, I'm, I'm sorry to bore you with this, but the Vorlaga is the Hebrew, original Hebrew Old Testament Bible. These Remnants discovered in the, last, in the 20th century match up word for word. So what we consider to be the Old Testament has not been polluted over the thousands of years. Here is a verified copy from around the time of Christ, and it's unchanged. The Septuagint is, um, is also the Old Testament, and um, about, about the year 285, um, about 300 years before Jesus the, the, most of the, the world was speaking Greek, and their scriptures were in Hebrew. You did, even if you were a Jew, you didn't speak Hebrew unless you had really specially been educated. So you couldn't read your own scriptures. So what they, they did, they said, let's fix that. And they got together about 70 scholars, and they spent 15 years making a, uh, a version of the Old Testament. From, they translated it from Hebrew into Greek, the language of that day. Those fragments found within the 20th century match the Septuagint version as well. So no, it hasn't been changed. It hasn't, there haven't been mistakes. How did the, uh, the, the book... So it's a book. So let's say, okay, it's really a book. It's really old. How do we know? What, what makes us say that it's inspired? Why is it the Word of God? What makes it the Word of God? By the way, the word canon, when you hear, about, hear us use the word canon, canon is, uh, um, comes from a, the same word in Greek, canon. And it basically means standard of measurement. So the point is that it becomes that against which we measure everything else. That's the concept for, for a canon. Authority rested on two sources. The scriptures had to agree with what God's word said in the Old Testament. And those that wrote it, there had to be some sort of direct, direct relationship with those who walked with Jesus and saw the miracles personally. Those were two requirements. And so... Um, the early church, by copying and verifying that they came, they are the ones who said these things are the truth, and they verified it. How accurate are the translations? There were ways that they would, um, there, there would be when they would make copies. There were very easy ways to find out whether any error would enter in. The the letters in their alphabet are also numbers, so we have separate numbers in, in English from our letters, but their letters are numbers. So you, when they would write the scripture down to make a copy. They would have a copy and they would write it down. Well, human error, you know, how many typos on a page? Well, was it very easy to find out if there was one because this original would have a numeric value for each line going across and each line going up and down. You would just simply add the numbers up and you would get totals. These numbers on the original had to match the same sums for the copy. 
if they, if they weren't exactly the same, there was an error. Go find it and fix it. And they were diligent about doing that. They had a good system. So like I said, the, I said earlier, the scriptures had human influence into, in terms of the form, but not the content. How do we know that the Bible is truly the word of God? That's really the germane question. How can you tell it, it's the word of God because it says so? That's a circular argument. If you're like me and you need something more than just you say so, it's he said, she said, I need some sort of evidence that would help me to know that the, 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 the living, breathing God penned something or put his finger to something. Okay, so I'm going to give you some examples. Okay? Some of the, it's, it's, it, the whole Bible, I believe this entire Bible is an integrated message. The first few chapters are the story of creation. Everything else, everything else is God's plan to redeem mankind. Everything else. And there are parts of it that you won't understand back here unless you also read over here. It's just the truth. Numbers 21. Here's a story from the Old Testament. Uh, Moses is told to raise a brass serpent on a pole. And people who were sick, if they would look at it, they would be made whole. You can read the story later. I don't want to take time on it today. It doesn't make any sense. Why would having people look at a serpent on a pole, why would raising something on a pole save anybody? And then you get to John 3.14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Here's Jesus explaining now what Moses was doing. And I have to tell you, the first time I read that story in Moses, I was thinking, this makes no sense to me. I'm just going to tuck this away in the I trust God category and at some point I will understand it. I can't explain it right now. And here we get to the New Testament. Some of you have that same file system, don't you? You do. So here's, you know, and in my Bible it's written in red. The words of Jesus, he says, so even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. The Old Testament tells the, the story about the, uh, the nation in detail and a lot of it is prophetic. A lot of it is prophetic, and we're going to talk about prophecy next week. I'll, I'll let you know a little more about that later. There are 8,362 predictive verses. Over 8,000 times, God speaks to someone and says, this is going to happen in the future, and it gets written down and goes in Scripture. Over 8,000 of them. The Bible demonstrates its supernatural origins and its authenticity with verified predictions about Jesus. Here, here are some... We're going to have a little bit of fun. There are lots of prophecies that talk about Jesus. I'm going to give you a handful of very specific ones, and I'm going to go quickly. Micah 5 says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Zechariah 9 says that the king will enter on a donkey. Zechariah 11 says that he, that he will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Ze- Zechariah 11.13 says that the money will be spent on the potter's field or, or tossed in the potter's field. Zechariah 13 says that he'll have wounds in his hands. Isaiah 53 says, he'll present no defense, although he's innocent. Isaiah 53, 9 says, he will go to the grave with the wicked, but be buried with the rich. That's a reference to the tomb of the rich man where he was buried. Psalm 22 says he would be crucified. Now, those are eight out of over 300 specific references to Jesus. And I picked those eight. And uh, I... I heard a, a teaching one time about a guy who's into math who calculated what are the odds that any person could satisfy all, all just of those eight. You start out like this. You say, he came from Bethlehem. Okay, so of the entire population of the earth, billions, he had, you, you rule out everybody who wasn't born in Bethlehem. You rule them all out. 
How many people come from Bethlehem versus the entire world? It's a ratio. You start there. Okay, how many of them will actually enter this, the holy city riding on a donkey? I don't know how you get that number, but there's probably a way to estimate it. The point is you keep, at, you keep factoring all of these odds into it. Uh, and you come up with this number if you do it correctly. You come up with a number of one chance out of 10 to the 28th. That's a one with 28 zeros after it. The odds of anybody meeting all eight is absurdly high. You'd be better off trying to win the lottery 10 times. I mean, there is just, this is an absurdly high number, and that's for eight items, but there are over 300, 300 prophecies, and Jesus met them all. He didn't get like 99% right. He got all of them. Statistically, um, scientists basically say that once you get to 10 to the 50th power, it's virtually certain. Although there still is one, you, you, there's still a chance, I suppose. But they say it's virtually certain at 10 to the 50. I don't know why 10 to the 28 isn't virtually certain. I think it's virtually certain. The point is that Jesus met them all. Some of the scripture when you read it is dramatic. I want to pause for just a minute and uh, read Psalm 22. So if you know the story of Christ, you can follow along with me if you want. But here's this psalm written way before Jesus. It's a prophecy. It, by the way, starts and ends with the same things Jesus said on the cross at the beginning and the end. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from, my wor- from, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and I am not silent. Verse three, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and delivered, and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. Verse six, but I am a worm, and no man, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are, the, you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you've been my God. This goes on down to verse 16. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. I love the end of verse 21. It says, you've answered me. And then all the way at the end of verse 31, he has done this. It's like a recounting of what happened while Christ was on the cross. How how could the author of that psalm have known so parallel if it wasn't the spirit of God that was prompting him as he wrote that psalm? Last week, if you were here, I teased you. And I said, next week, we're going to talk about why you should believe the Word of God. If you weren't here, this is pretty cool. If you were here, then you'll get to see this and be amazed a second time. <laughs> Genesis chapter 5, there's a genealogy there of, of, of 10 generations from Adam to Noah. And uh, we're going to just review with you the names of those and, and say what their names are. So I need some help, Amy. Push your little button. <laughs> okay, Adam simply translates and means man, okay? Seth means appointed. So Seth had a son and named him Enosh. Enosh means mortal. Canaan, Canaan or Kenan means sorrow. By the way, you can look these up. 
And in the footnotes of most, many Bibles, you will see their names translated. This is not a hard study. Canaan had a son named Mahalalel, means the blessed God. By the way, some of the Psalms are called the Hallels, which are the praises. Mahalalel, the blessed God. He had a son named Jared, which means shall come down. Enoch means commencement or teaching. Going too fast. For those of you that I'm going to, I heard that. This is going to be on a little piece of half, half sheet of paper waiting for you on the table in the foyer after church today if you want a copy. Because we got requests last week. Methuselah. Um, actually, there's two root words there. It means death and bring. His death shall bring. His son was named Lamech, which means despairing. Same root word as lamentations. And of course, Noah means to bring relief or comfort. Now, when you take all of those 10 names in order, you get this. You get this. <laughs> it's not magic. It's just pre-planning, okay? So we take those 10 names and you turn it into an English sentence. And in English, we have articles. So I'm going to stick some articles in and just read them in order. Man, appointed mortal sorrow. But the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort. Every time I read that, I get chills. So let's figure this out for a minute. Jewish rabbis who rejected Christ as the Savior conspired over a period of time that preceded them by thousands of years to have sons who beget sons who beget sons be named something that would create a sentence that tells the gospel story. What's the chances of that? It's got to be more than 10 to the 28, right? I mean, I mean, it's got to be... This is very obviously, when you see these kinds of things in Scripture, these, these names are not in dispute. The names, the meanings of the names are not disputed. The sentence, the sentence is an evidence of someone's tampering. It's the evidence of someone's engineering. Something hidden in there just because someone might later be willing to study a little bit. One of the end-time prophecies that I love is, is there's an end-time prophecy that says, in the last days, that knowledge will increase. This is an example of that. This isn't some new revelation. This is just a discovery of something that God had already done. It doesn't change the gospel, but it proves something beyond man's capability is involved in the writing of this text. That's one example. It one's pretty, that one's a little harder to find out. Now, here's another one that's a little more obvious, but you've got to be paying attention to catch this one. Daniel 9 I love the book of Daniel. It's terrific. It's very prophetic. In uh, verse 25, here's this prophecy that Gabriel the angel is giving to Daniel. Now, interesting, in the whole Bible, I think that only three angels are ever named. You have Michael. You have Gabriel. Michael is always, he always comes in the context of um, battle in behalf of, of the nation of Israel. Gabriel is always doing something, there is always something messianic about his commentary. The third angel who's named in the Bible, I'm not going to give him the respect enough to say his name out loud because he doesn't deserve it. Okay? I'll let it go with that. You can ask me afterwards and I'll tell you. <laughs> so Gabriel comes to, to Daniel and he gives him this. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the king, your translation might say prince, but the word is actually king, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, that's kind of a confusing statement. 
Daniel is in the captivity, and he's done his homework. He knows that the captivity is about to end because there was a previous prophecy that said it would be 70 years long, and time is getting short. Gabriel shows up given this prophecy. So he says that from the going forth of the command to, to restore and build Jerusalem, the city-state, until, that's the start of the prophecy, until Messiah the prince or Messiah the king, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, 69 weeks. Now, this is a prophecy that is so specific. Something's going to happen. Here's when it's going to start. Here's how long it's going to take. It's a very measurable prophecy. When you and I talk about um, passage of time, we use, um, what's 10, you know, 10, 10 laps around the sun? What would we call that? Somebody help me. 10 years? A decade. So there's more than one way of describing it. This word weeks, 69 weeks, is their way of saying sevens. A week is a, as a group of seven. Not seven days, but in this case, it's seven years. Okay, so I'm going to give you some quick facts, and I could bore you with the math, but, um, but I'm going to give you some quick facts. When um, Artaxerxes Longimanus, and you'll see this recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2, basically says, go ahead and go back and rebuild the city-state. The clock started ticking. 69 weeks. Okay, what, I'm going to give you a little bit of math. 69 weeks is 483 years. Their calendar, a year was 360 days, so it's 483 times 360, and that comes up with a certain number of days. You have, it's 173,880 days. If you've got a piece of paper, and you want to write that number down, 173,880. It's a lot of days. A lot of days. The clock starts. Longimana says, go ahead and rebuild the city. Off they go. The dates can be very specifically measured. That, that, that command was given on March 14th, 445 B.C., it's undisputed. The time goes by, and on exactly April 6, 32 AD, Jesus enters the city riding on the back of a colt. To the day. Not approximate, not close. And you can calculate the, the, the date as well. How do you do that? Well, on our calendar, it's 476. It's, it, I'm not going to do it. I, I'll show you. If you want to see it, I got it in my notes. It's verified, but it's not, it's not like within a percent. It's not like within a month. It's 173,880 days. Exactly. That's the reason Jesus was crying then. That's why he wept over the city as he went in. It's, um, here's what he said. You'll find this in Luke 19. It's in, this event is actually important enough that it gets recorded in all four of the Gospels. It says, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build. Jesus was weeping because they should have known. This was already written in Scripture. It was actually written in Scripture 200 years before they formed the Septuagint. It was in Scripture in their language, and they knew the calendar system. They should have known the date. There's another example. To the day, the Word of God talks about something. There are so many places in Scripture. Here's another one. Um, when Jesus was saying that, he said, you should have known. He says, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. He's speaking to the city of Jerusalem. 
and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Okay? Well, how does that prophecy come true? In the year 70 AD, the, the, the Jews and the Romans are at war. The Jews don't win that war. The Romans take over. Well, you can look in a history book and study this out, but what you find out, here's what happened. It was common when, a, when an army would conquer, they would burn the place. So some Roman soldier lit the building on fire and it burns down. Well, when the centurion who was leading that group heard that, he was upset because he had been commanded to bring home all of the gold articles, all of them, the bowls, the lab- all, all of the, everything that was going to be in the temple that would be, be made out of gold, bring it all home. So he gave a command to his troops, tear the building down. Do not leave one stone upon another. I don't want to miss one silver or gold spoon or fork. And Jesus' testimony, he says, they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Not to get the gold, but because you did not know the time of your visitation. Scripture is full of examples like that. And... um, Christ fulfills the scriptures, the, 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 mess, the specifications for being Messiah way beyond any sort of competent dispute. Then, if he truly is God, if he truly is the Messiah, as he's proven by these, these prophecies, he turns around then and he authenticates the scriptures itself. He says the scriptures are holy. And there are lots of places. Um, he, there are over 165 direct quotes. There are all kinds of allusions he makes to it. It's all over the word of God. Matthew 5, here's, here's probably a primary one. Matthew 5, he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until it's all fulfilled. Scripture declares its divine origin and its integrity. It just declares it to us. Not only does it demonstrate its authenticity, but it stays relevant today. You know, it's, it's relevant after thousands of years, and today's books, they got a shelf life. Go to college, and your textbook, from one year to the next, it becomes obsolete, and you've got to buy another $350 textbook. <laughs> I don't know if that's what, that, what that is, except they just truly become obsolete. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. This is all pretty compelling. I mean, I could continue to give you some facts to say it would be impossible for people to make this up. This up. It would be impossible to be able to do that. There, the studies on this are pretty fun to read. But I know, I, I know people who have said, um, you know, well, if God would just show himself, just one time, take over all the TV channels, take over all the cables, stand on a mountaintop and say, I'm a God, I am, I am God, so you really should straighten up and follow me. They say, well, as soon as he would do that, then I'll know he's real. He's not going to do that. He's already done it. He has already done it over and over and over again. Scripture is full of examples of where he showed up in person. He showed up as a pillar of fire. He showed up as a cloud of smoke. He showed up in so many different ways, and still, it's not enough. I think that's why... God says that without faith, it's impossible to please him. Not really hard. It's impossible. And there is just something inside of us. There's just something of self-will that's inside of us. You know, I, 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 I have this really, really old memory. I was just a little guy. 
And um, <laughs> my mother's in the room, so I have to be careful now because I don't want to get in trouble again for this. But, um, you know, when you're a little kid and you're running around in the neighborhood and you hear all kinds of things, and uh, I, th- I don't remember what happened. Anything, I don't really remember anything except at one moment I'm standing in the room and I, I shout out this curse word. And um, I, don't, I had no idea what it meant. Um, but I knew instantly it was wrong to do it because um, my parents, you know, they, where did you hear that, all, the, all that routine? Well, they sent me to my room. And I went to my room and I closed my door and I promptly walked over to the closet and I opened the closet door and I walked in the closet and I closed the door and I stood in there and I just said that word over and over and over again. <laughs> I couldn't have been more than four or five. That's an old memory. And it sticks with me. And it's defiant. There's just something down in the human will that does not want to give up control. There's just something down in there that does not want to yield. We want to be our own boss. And it's like the word of God is this, it's like manna. You know, the word manna actually literally means what is it? Manna is how God fed the children of Israel when they were wandering in the desert precisely because of their strong will. So they're in the desert. And the rules about the manna was that it would fall every day except for one. And you were supposed to gather what you needed every day. And you had to gather your own. No one else could gather it for you. So is the word of God. There's a certain point where I can stand up here and teach you and expose you and explain it to you, but there is a role where at some point your will has to bend to your heart and to your spirit and say, I will gather my own bread. I'll participate in this journey with the Lord. And when you are exposed to truths, quote, kind of truth. You, you need to use the canon, the measuring standard to determine what's true. There are lots of measurements. Your feelings, the stories of other people, even your experiences are not an adequate measuring standard compared to the Word of God. There, um, there is risk in sniffing every fragrance that comes along. <laughs> when Lisa and I are out and around, we we go into what um, I call an oh cute store. <laughs> Some of you already know because guys, you know, we hang out by the entrance because the smell is so strong, we've got to have oxygen. <laughs> and if you just stand there and listen, you'll hear, oh cute, oh cute, oh cute, oh cute, all throughout the store. It's an oh cute store. They've always got candles burning or incense or, you know, those little sticks. I don't know what that's all about, but they've got these things going. There's always, and I learned something. Never smell a burning candle. It hurts. So some of the theories that come along, 
some of the so-called truths that come floating along, they'll burn you. They will burn you. And in every, every single person that can hear me right now, there's either a little, willful little boy or a willful little girl that doesn't want to give up control. But Hebrews 11.6, which is one of my absolute favorite verses in the whole Word of God, says that without faith, it's, an, it's impossible, impossible, impossible to please God. Without faith, you cannot please God. Because if you're going to come to God, you must believe that He is who He says He is and know this about Him. He rewards people who diligently seek after Him. He rewards them. He rewards them. If you seek God, He's going to reward you. I want to pray for all of you. And... Um, Would you just bow your head for a moment and let's invite the Lord's presence. God, with all of those just plain facts, Lord, um, I pray, Lord, that the facts now will sift into the background and, Lord, the things of the Spirit would settle upon hearts. We release the moving of your Spirit upon us now, God, knowing that you would draw people into this place. And in the quietness of this moment, Lord, I ask you to to speak to wills, to human will. Lord, forgive me when my will is not in cadence with your, your call and your footsteps. Lord, I pray that there would be something of softening in this room of hearts and wills towards you and your word. And God, I specifically want to pray over people today and this issue of faith. I ask that the intellect wouldn't persuade the spirit. But God, by the sharing of these facts, I pray, Lord, that the arguments between intellects and spirits would now be quieted. That something of faith would displace that. That, Lord, you are God. You did create the heavens and the earth. You do love us. You do love us, God. I pray, Lord, against any, anything that would be telling a single person here that they're not loved, that they're not valued. I, I pray, pray, God, for a, a, a laying out of love upon your people today. I pray, Lord, for a building of faith in this room. And God, I want to uh, ask also for a drawing in. Now, church, while we're praying and while eyes are closed, I would give opportunity Anybody that's never opened their heart before, you need to know that there is a book called The Lamb's Book of Life. It's found elsewhere in Scripture. And a day will come that God will look at that book and the names of people who are written in The Lamb's Book of Life will be invited into eternity. And those whose name is not there, well, let's just put it this way. You want your name in that book. The Word says that You cannot be holy enough yourself. You just can't be a good enough person. If you believe with your heart and share that with someone, if you believe in your heart that he came, that he died, that he rose the dead, and it was a price he paid for you, and you share that with someone, the word of God says you'll be saved. If you've never opened your heart to the Lord, I just ask you to do that right now. Decide right now to open your heart to the Lord. And I just want to agree with you. So I'm looking across the room. If you'd like to open your heart to the Lord right now, We just make eye contact with me and just let me agree. That's all I'm going to do. Thank you, Lord. Fill this room with your spirit, God, I pray.
Everybody look at me. I mean, don't look at me. <laughs> um, look up here. You just learned how to lead someone to the Lord. You just learned a couple of scriptures. I think it's really important, church, especially in a room like this that's full of believers, full of people, that your radar is sensitive to the people at school, at the office, in the grocery store, to the gal who brings the coffee to your table in the restaurant, to the guy who just cuts you off on the off-ramp, that something of your spirit would pray for people and invite them into the kingdom with just your tenor and your temperature. Okay? Okay, good. Okay, we'll stand to your feet. Go carefully. I've been talking too long. I don't want to put anybody down on the ground because they faint. Okay, so here's the deal about next week. I want to talk to you a little bit about next week. We're in a three-week um, role here. We've done two, and this is about grounding yourself in the Lord, in his word, and the next week's going to be grounding yourself in the voice of the Lord. And, um, oh, don't stop playing. That was so nice. That was great. Don't you guys, I just love the, the nice soft music. So, so next week we're going to talk about the prophetic, the voice of the, the supernatural voice of God. How do you know that it's the supernatural voice of God? How do you know that it's not some sort of a counterfeit? And uh, so I want to say that we, uh, we follow a supernatural God. We follow a supernatural God, and he uses supernatural ways to gain our affection, to speak to us, to encourage us, and to guide us. So next week we're going to talk about how can you know the real voice from the counterfeit. <laughs> the guys are going, what's that all about? And the girls go, oh, I know what that's about. Why pay $400 for a purse when you can get it for $15, right? Washington, D.C., they're all over the street corners there. We were back there a few years ago, and you can buy any expensive purse you want for, four, for $15, two for $25. Um, problem is none of them are the genuine article, but they're, 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 they're nice-looking purses. The Word of God is like that, too, the prophetic word. There are going to be a lot of people out there that will tell you things God is saying. You'll hear about things that are God, are, God is doing. You need to be able to discriminate the real from the phony. Next week, we're going to talk about that. Here's, as you go out the door, I'm going to give you two um, quick proverbs. And these are not out of the book of Proverbs. The first one is an African proverb. Knowledge is like a garden. If it's not cultivated, it cannot be harvested. Here's a Greek one. If God be with us, everything that is impossible becomes possible. God bless you all. Thanks for being in church today. Make sure you greet a few people and love on a few people as you go. And we'll see you next week. Keep playing.